look at authority this morning. Now, I want you to know this week I listened to many voices. And I want you to know you did too. We all listen to voices every week. Who did you listen to? I listened to Leroy over Thai food. And I dialogued with Dale and Patty Paris for about three hours in my study. Frank and I shared a very frank conversation. I was very proud that I came up with that little play on words. And if you know Frank, you know that that conversation can be a frank conversation. I listened to psychiatrist Kurt Thompson on the role of beauty in our mental health journey. Carrie said, you need to listen to this. I paid close attention to Tim Keller. He unfolded John Calvin's insight into the spiritual formation of a pastor, where he takes and he looks at the monastic movement where it became an elite thing in the Catholic Church, that these were somehow above everybody else, these monks. And he said, yeah, that's not right, but what they were doing was right. And we need to take their practices and incorporate them into our lives. I was pulled in by Dr. Bayoun Billon, a French philosopher, theologian, and his book, Confessions of a French Atheist. And then N.T. Wright filled my dreams with the landscape of Romans 8 from his new book as I listened to him talk about that. This week, we all listen to voices, many. We get to choose who we will listen to. And just because we're sitting in front of a doctor, Bethel, just because your patients are sitting there doesn't mean they're listening to you. Just because you're listening to a pastor or a teacher doesn't mean we're paying attention to their voice. Because we all possess this gift, and it's called zoning out. <laughs> Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, he talks about this prophet. There will be a prophet that is coming who will rise up from among you, he says, and he will be part of the people, and he'll own a house on Basin Street, he'll wash his clothes at the laundromat, and he'll eat lunch at Taco Bell. He's going to be a part of you. And He's going to be like family. That's the prophet. Prophets came. Isaiah came. He saw this vision concerning Judah, Jerusalem during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And the first words out of Isaiah's mouth, the first words are, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. When in Israel we visited Qumran, it's the place of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I we were in the museum and we were only there for like half an hour and I wanted to spend like the whole day there. It's a place where the ancient text of Isaiah was found preserved by the Essenes, the whole text of Isaiah. In the museum located there at its center is a replica, it's on the screen, of the original text of Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The original is held in a vault underground to protect it from a bomb. Think of that. What's important? What's important? Whose voice do we need to hear? Every once in a while, without notice, the replica is replaced with the original just for a couple hours and no one knows when it's going to happen. Why all this fuss over Isaiah? Isaiah the prophet. 
It's because all of Isaiah's 66 chapters are about life. God is a God of life who is interacting in history through the prophets a message of rescue. And that's what's sacred. So they put it in a vault underneath so it doesn't get blown up. This is the voice of God to us. And then Jeremiah, he receives the word of the Lord in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. Down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Jeremiah proclaims, the word of the Lord came to me. He spends decades preaching, decades, but no one listens to Jeremiah, and that's why he's called the weeping prophet. He spoke God's word and no one listened. Ezekiel has a vision. We read in the 13th year of the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw this vision of God. And I'm moved by the specifics in these. I mean, look, there is nothing general being spoken. Year, month, day are documented. A gather, the gathering is described. It's the exiles. Landmarks are identified. The Kabar River. It happened in history. Let me ask you, do you have landmarks, dates, where God has spoken to you? Dr. Brian Widbin 75 was our guide in Israel. The picture on the screen is at the Sea of Galilee. He's PhD, he was in history in Old, and Old Testament, ancient history and Old Testament from Brandeis University where he taught for a chunk of time. He's taken over 35 years, he's done these tours. He works for the American Embassy. And for years he's had an apartment provided for him by them in Jerusalem. He comes and goes. He works on issues of reconciliation between the Palestinians and the Israelis. He's pretty busy right now. <laughs> Carrie's dad stole him from Brandis at the seminary where he was president. And he came right as I was graduating. Carrie's brother went to that seminary years, a few years later. And Brian and Mark were neighbors. They lived side by side in the same, lived side by side in the same duplex. It took Brian about two days to figure out that Carrie was Wendell's daughter who hired him, and he just loved Wendell, and Mark's sister. And here they are. This was when they finally connected and realized he realized who she was. I'm for 30 years, or over 30 years, on Christmas Eve, he has arranged tours so he can be in Bethlehem. On Christmas Eve. It is where he met Jesus. It is where the Word of God overwhelmed him into a pile of tears. It was his moment of Isaiah where he glimpsed the glory of God, but not in this transcendent scene of seraphs and angels flying. It was in a virgin who had a child. And he saw the God who brought a sense of doom to Isaiah descend in the flesh of a baby to be cuddled next to Mary's breast. And we stood in Bethlehem Courtyard, right there, in the heat of August, and Brian burst into song. 
Tears, not sweat, trinkled onto his cheeks. And he led us all in the old little town of Bethlehem. And we sang it out as tourists wandered by us. Well, I want you to know Moses tells us in Deuteronomy that there's a prophet coming like himself. His exact words are, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And then Deuteronomy 34 ends, and Moses isn't writing this, No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders. There's a 400-year silence between the Old Testament prophets and the coming of Jesus. And during that 400-year gap, the Old Testament, that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Moses was interpreted as speaking in Deuteronomy 18 toward the coming Messiah. That's what's happening in Deuteronomy 18. He's speaking about the Messiah. We see in Peter's second sermon in Acts 3.20 that God may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. And you must... Listen to everything he says. He's talking about Jesus. And think about the transfiguration in Mark 9. Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus on the mountain. And Peter, James, and John, they're they're witnessing the whole thing. And and this this cloud comes down and, and it covers them and they can't see. And all of a sudden they hear this voice. This is my son. I love him. Listen to him, and the fog lifts. And when that fog lifts, Moses and Elijah are gone. Who are they to listen to? Not Moses and Elijah. They are to listen to Jesus. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy, there will come a prophet after him. Listen to him. What did Jesus say throughout his ministry? You've heard it said, but I say to you, You've heard it said, but I say to you, listen to me. He's the one Moses was talking about. The very person of Moses foreshadows, points to Christ. Think of this. Both Jesus and Moses were outsiders. Both received long training before their public ministry. Each performed many miracles. Both were saved from an evil king who tried to kill them as babies. Both faced masters of evil and both fasted 40 days. They both controlled the sea. Both fed thousands of people, manna from heaven, the loaves and fishes. Each showed the light of God's glory on their face. Each faithfully endured the rebellion of their own family, their own people. Both were not favored by their hometowns. Both saved their people through intercessory prayer. Each was God's mouthpiece. Each had 70 helpers. It keeps going. Each established memorials. Both Jesus and Moses appeared after death. Each did the most important vocations of the ancient world, prophet, priest, and king. Finally, Moses and Jesus led their people from slavery to freedom and to the promised land. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. We cannot ignore the similarities between the Moses story and the Jesus story. 
Jesus enters the synagogue. Mark chapter 1. Among his own people. It's a synagogue. He's known and respected. He has to be, at least enough to teach in the synagogue. The synagogue was primarily a place of instruction. It was a classroom. It was, there was prayer, there was scripture reading, and then there was exposition, and that's what happened in the synagogue. There was no music or singing, Tom Middleton. You would have loved it. Wherever there were 10 Jewish families, there needed to be a synagogue. You see, the temple was in Jerusalem, but in the villages where families resided, there were synagogues. And no ordained person oversaw the synagogues, the gatherings. There was a ruler of the synagogue who would call on male worshipers to stand up after the scriptures were read and exposit, to teach on that passage. So Stephen, stand up and tell us about Deuteronomy 18 and Mark chapter 1. Rick, stand up and teach us. Thank you. Please stay seated. (laughs) What they were saying is, here's your pulpit, persuade, appeal to all those gathered. In Mark chapter 1, we are told Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach and we are told that people were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed. They were astounded. Jesus was called upon to teach. I have a row of 20-some books in my study, and I've read most of them, Four Views of Hell, Four Views of the Lost, Four Views of the Millennium, Four Views of Scripture, Four Views of Law and Grace, Four Views of Evil, Four Views of the Eucharist, and Christ followers, passionate Christ followers, dialogue and present different understandings of how to understand those biblical ideas and thoughts. They interpret it a little differently. I taught theology and scripture, ethics, and philosophy at Moses Lake Christian Academy for 10 years. My classes consisted of Presbyterians, Charismatics, Lutherans, Baptists, Catholics, Methodists, Assembly of God, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, CMA people, CRC people, and occasionally a Buddhist and a Hindu. It was energizing and contentious at times. In the synagogues, those that taught didn't teach anything new. They interpreted the tradition. They used, referred to sources, both written and oral, to explain how the Calvins and Luthers and Pope Francis's and C.S. Lewis's of their day interpreted the text. And notice that I just gave you an example of a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, an Anglican, and a Catholic. They didn't speak on their own authority in the synagogue. I hated endnotes, but I love footnotes. I hate having to flip back to the back of a book to see what they're talking about. But oh, I love footnotes at the bottom of the page, and I want you to know there was a lot of footnoting in the synagogue. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. No footnoting with Jesus. He speaks on his own authority. That's why those gathered are astonished and they're amazed. They had not experienced anything like this. The word astonishment and amazed also carries this notion of fear. Amazement, astonishment, fear. What they experienced, it unsettled them. I mean, have you ever gone to shake something or to mix 
uh, shape something up to mix it or loosen its context only to realize that the lid wasn't fastened. And I know some of you probably go to the restaurants and you unscrew the lid of the salt shaker and just kind of set it there so the next person that comes, I've done that, come on, you have done that too. Well, these people in the synagogue are losing an eternal sense of security because of who Jesus is in their presence. Emotions of fear and the overwhelming dread fills the air. Astonishment, amazement. What is this, a new teaching? And with what authority? Prophet Isaiah shouted in desperation in Isaiah 6 when he's confronted of being in the presence of God, the substance of who God is. Woe is me, I'm ruined. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The word woe is is coming undone from the inside. His contents are flying out of his inner salt shaker. Our inner souls are like a rope, like the picture on the screen. And it's been cut and it's fraying and strands of us internally are traveling in all directions because we are in the very presence of God. We become amazed, astonished, and fear that something immense has overwhelmed us. And that something in Mark 1 has a name, Jesus. Twice in Mark 1, we are told that Jesus taught as one with authority. Verse 22 and verse 27. The word is exousia. It's an important word. It differs from the word dynamis, where we get the word dynamite. Dynamite is external. It's power outside. Exousia has an internal reference point. It comes from within a person. It comes from their substance. Jesus does not base his understanding on external power or references in his teaching. It all comes from within his internal being. The ex in exousia means out of. So Jesus' authority comes out of who he is as a person, his substance. Usia means substance. It's where we get the word be or being. And Jesus acts and teaches out of that inner substance. Jesus teaches with authority. And we confess in this church, we do different kinds of confessions every Sunday. This Sunday we're going to be in 1 Timothy. But we, we will often do the Apostles' Creed. We do the Nicene Creed. The two ancient creeds. Well, these are historical statements, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, of belief that are carefully constructed and carefully worded. And the Nicene Creed was written in 325 A.D., and it says this. We sang some of the words of the Nicene Creed in the hymn, During the Lord Be With You. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. The word in the creed for one substance is homoousia, homosexual, same-sex attraction. Homoousia of the same substance as God. They were very clear of what they were trying to tell us. This is what we believe when we gather. Jesus is the real deal of God in the flesh. He teaches and acts out of the substance of being God. That's authority. 
He's the ultimate reality. And let me ask you, who is the first in the Gospel of Mark who connected Jesus' authority with God himself? Who cried out in the synagogue gathering, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Who confessed that in the story? It was the demonic. It was the demonic. The very presence of Jesus, because he is God in flesh, begins to unravel the demonic in fear. What are you going to do with us? People in Jesus' world understand, recognize that there were forces in the world beyond their control. These powers would and could take them over. The great N.T. Wright, I were providing his book for Lent, he wrote this in that book. These, he says, people say in our world, I don't know what made me do it. We've heard people say that. People in Jesus' world reckon they did know why some people seemed totally off the rails. There were hostile spiritual forces out there, hard to define but powerful in their effect. Calling such a force demon or evil spirit doesn't mean they knew exactly what it was. I would argue today, me, that we tend to downplay the demonic until we come face to face with it. And if you want to read a good account of someone who didn't believe in that, but they came face to face with it in their psych psychiatric uh, clinic, Scott Peck, People of the Lie, New York Times bestseller. I had to read it in grad school in the 80s. Fascinating. There's a story. It's called The Awakening. One man's battle with darkness. It's about Johann Christian Blumhardt. What a great name, huh? He's a German Lutheran pastor. He lived from 1805 to 1880. Karl Barth said of him, and I, Karl Barth's the, you know, Karl Barth, understand, Karl Barth is considered probably the greatest theologian in the 20th century. And he wasn't, he had many Catholic friends, but he wasn't, a, he, he wasn't a complete friend of Catholic thinking. He was Reformed. He was more Presbyterian. But he was asked at one point by the Pope to go and dress all the cardinals and the, the bishops in Rome. And so he goes and he's going to give a lecture there. And the Pope introduces him as the greatest theologian of the 20th century. And Karl Barth stands up and the first thing he says is, well... I never believed in papal infallibility until just now. <laughs> but he said about Blumhardt, Blumhardt does something very few of us can do, represent God's cause in the world, yet not wage war on the world, love the world, and yet be completely faithful to God. Blumhardt was someone who impacted him in the way he wrote about Christ the victor. I want you to know he battles darkness in this book. He confronts and converses with spirits in the demonic. And he loved proclaiming Christ the victor. He did not give an inch. I read this to some of my student, my classes when I was at the academy. 
A casual reading, you see, of the life of Jesus finds a firm conviction that the demonic is real. 17 times in the New Testament, it connects the demonic with the ministry of Jesus. Nine times Jesus casts out demons, like in Mark chapter 1. Different times in the story, Bloomhart's story, he is asked by a spirit for a favor. He's asked, they, they, asked, they asked to be granted permission for something. It'll, it'll challenge the way you think. Because we don't know everything, especially when we're dealing with the unseen world. I want to read just a section. At this point, a woman, the woman asked Bloomhart, who are you? When he answered, a servant of the gospel, she replied, yes, and what a hard one. That response shook Bloomhart to the core, and he asked her, where are you? Because this is a woman, but he realizes he's not talking to the woman solely. And she says, I'm in the chasm. And then she told me how much had changed in the spirit world because of this fight we were having, and that I had succeeded thus far only because I had relied solely on the Word of God and on prayer. Where's this authority come from? If I had resorted to popular means of warding off evil spirits, remedies and spells and cures, in the ancient world they would drill holes in the head and they would think that they could suck out the demons that way. There's archaeology finds of cemeteries where this was common. He said, I would have been trapped. The demons raised a finger to emphasize her point and ended with the words, it is a dreadful battle that you have undertaken. And then she pleaded with me to pray for her to be released from the devil's power. She had unwittedly fallen into his thrall by dabbling in idolatry, sorcery, and sympathetic magic and to be given a place of rest. This is right out of his own work. He's writing this. This is his journal. I had known this woman well in her lifetime. She had shown a hunger for the word of God such as I had rarely seen. My heart ached for her. Glancing toward heaven, I asked her, but where do you want to go? I should like to remain in your house, she said. And he said, no, take him back. That can't be. And then she says, may I go into the church? I considered this request a moment and then replied, if you promise not to disturb anybody and never make yourself visible, I will have no objection if Jesus permits it. If Jesus permits it. Where does the authority lie in our lives? <laughs> you have heard it said, but I say to you, who has the authority in your life? Is it Jesus Christ and His Word from the Gospels? It's all about Him. I mean, this guy was a Lutheran pastor. I mean, it was Martin Luther who just brilliantly said that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word, is wrapped in swaddling clothes, which are the holy scriptures, and he's placed in the major, the cradle, which is the church, and that whole word always goes forth. It's a beautiful picture by Luther. 
He's submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ, homoousia, of the same substance of the Father because Jesus Christ is the incarnate Word. He's one substance with God. Jesus in our story tells the demons, be quiet. And the best translation is, shut up. He tells them to shut up. And then he delivers the man from evil. We pray every Sunday. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or better translations are the evil one. Jesus shows up and things start unraveling in the seen world and the unseen powers behind that world. And one of the substance, and out of the substance of who Jesus was and is, that authority, Jesus heals. Is it any wonder that the word of Jesus spread like wildfire through the ancient world? And eventually the whole world. That's what we're to be a part of. It is being spread through the whole world. Because all authority in heaven and earth have been given to Jesus, and he gives it to us to go into all the world and preach him who is the authority. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's pray.